Lord God, we come to you this day grateful once again for the reality of the resurrected Lord. Because we're reminded through it, as once you ransomed your people from Egypt and led them to free, freedom in the promised land, so through this event, you've delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your risen Son. May we this morning see this historical event with renewed eyes and warm our hearts to the reality of your grace upon each and every one of us that you offer. And in so doing, set our hearts on fire with love for you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Leslie Weather Weatherhead, in his piece entitled Comradeship, tells a story from World War II where two guys who had gone through boot camp and, and become the best of friends got into a fierce, fierce firefight on the European front. And one evening, one of the soldiers came back to the trench but found his buddy had not returned. So many people had been killed in action that day, so he went around concerned that his best friend had died. So he asked around and somebody said to him, I'm not certain that he was killed, but last time I saw him, he was terribly injured. And by now, he's certainly dead. It was getting darker. Enemy fire was still going about their heads. And it was very difficult to go out. So he decided he was going to give it a try. But his commanding officer said, absolutely not. I can't afford to lose both of you. Stay here. Well, his officer wasn't looking, so he jumped over the trench and started to look. He looked and he looked, and there were hundreds of men on the ground. Hundreds. It was an awful sight. Where after a few hours, he actually found his friend, picked him up, and carried his dead friend's body back. And while he was doing this, he himself received a mortal wound. And so the moment he reached the trench, he fell on the floor with the body of his dead friend. The commanding officer came up to him, absolutely furious with him. He said, I told you not to go. I've lost both of you now. It wasn't worth it. He looked at him and said, sir, it was worth it. Because when I arrived, he looked him in the eyes and he said, Jim, I knew you would come. I knew you would come. I read that story this week and I thought to myself, that's Easter. Because we've been looking all through Luke's biography since Christmas for the one who would come and do what we couldn't do to make us right with God. To give us meaning, hope, joy, peace. And live an impactful life. And this is exactly what Luke is asking us, because it started with, and that's what we've entitled our series, right? That you may be certain. Those aren't Gene's words. This is not some cute phrase that I thought up in my study one day. It was Luke's words, that you may be certain. And so what Luke wants, when you get to chapter 24, he's begging you, do you understand? Do you get it? It's true. And so because of this, 
and you look at not only the resurrection, but how Luke is writing, it's the first century world is very much like ours. It's a great world of uncertainty, meaninglessness, injustice, inequality, great evil, and unease about the political leadership. And all these things are brought about because of the certainty that Jesus brings us. He brings us meaning, peace, joy, and hope in times like these. So I invite you to turn with me in the back of your building to Luke 24. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open it with me. Because all the things that are brought about can give us such certainty if we will just avail ourselves to it. What we learn in this passage are three great truths, my friends. First, that those who do get it realize that the resurrection is true and that Jesus has truly conquered death. Two, because he conquered death, it verifies the good news that he offers us. And three, we realize how we can get it. Right? Those three things. Those who get it realize that God and Jesus has conquered death. The resurrection is real. And because of that, he's God. Two, that those who get it recognize that that reality verifies the good news. And lastly, how we can get it. So let's look at these, shall we? The first point is those who get it realize that the resurrection demonstrate that Jesus is God and has authority. First one of chapter 24, but on the first day of the week at the early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. First of all, these first believers that the angels appeared to, who are the they of whom Luke speaks? Well, we see their names in particular in verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene, it was Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. Double M, Jojo, and Mary, all right, are there. And they've arrived around 6.30 or 7 in the morning, and they realize the tomb is empty. And Luke records this and records how they go back. Now, this is an amazing thing. Here's why this is remarkable. In the first century, in Jewish culture and Greco-Roman culture, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. Women were treated awfully as pieces of property. They were marginalized. They had no social standing in this culture. And yet, Luke records that it was Double M, Jojo, and Mary who saw them first, along with the others. 
There was not a dude in this group. I mean, if you or I were writing it, wouldn't we say, well, if we really want people to believe our story, we probably ought to have Peter running after the women. We won't even mention them. But it's not just Luke. It's the other good news writers who record for us that, number one, it's the women who showed up. And the only reason that women would be mentioned in the first century as being the first eyewitness testimony to the reality of the resurrection is because it was true and it really happened. It would make no sense whatsoever for them to mention these people. And yet that's exactly what Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John do the same. That's the first Great piece of evidence that the reality of the resurrection is true. Secondly, is the transformed lives of the disciples and the early church. We see in verse 12, after hearing this, only Peter, according to Luke, rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. <laughs> that word marveling in the Greek means he was filled with great awe and moved to action because of what he's just observed. He's heard it and he's acted upon it. Think, who is this guy? I mean, just three nights ago, he denied Jesus, just as Jesus said he would. And for 48 hours, he's been hiding out, thinking, can I go back to fishing? I don't think I can go back to Capernaum and fish, but maybe I can go back to another area where nobody knows me. Uh, I mean, he is absolutely terrified. And if you hang with us, because over the next six weeks, what we are going to see is a growing confidence for not only Peter, but all the disciples, as they will on the day of Pentecost, be filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to spread the good news of who Jesus truly is. Why? Because it's true. You wouldn't behave like they're going to behave as we're going to see over the next six weeks if it wasn't true. Because what we tend to do is to make Jesus into who we want him to be. And we live the lives the way we want to live them and make him a little g, little j, Jesus. And therefore, he's all right. And Peter, and Mary, and Joanna, and Mary Magdalene, mother of James, or mother of James, rather, will have none of that. He is risen. And because it's risen, it's true. And this good news in this early church changed the Roman Empire, my friends. Did you know that it was a common practice that if girls were born, it, they were often taken out to the trash heap outside of town. Infanticide was legal. Did you know that? The early church recognized, because of the resurrection, that every human being has value. Every human being is created in the image of God. And it didn't matter whether you're white, you're black, you're Jew or Greek. Slave or free, didn't matter who you were, you were valuable in God's sight. And so if a kid was deformed, they went out to the trash heap, they picked him up. If the kid was a girl, 
They grabbed her and they picked them up and they brought them into their homes. They raised them as their own. They adopted them in and the whole world sat up and took notice. If this isn't true, that's all, all for nothing. But they were willing to lay down their lives for that which they knew was true because they saw it to be true. And don't, don't trust me and don't just trust the Bible. There's non-Christian sources which say the same thing. Josephus is a Jewish historian. Speaking of what the early church was saying, and so was Tacitus and Suetonius. Roman scholars who were saying, these Christians, they're crazy. Here's what they're doing. But they saw him, so here's what they're saying. Are you certain? Do you get it? You see, my friends, Jesus is either a liar, which means he knew what he was doing and he was willing to die for it. That makes this a, an evil story. Or he's a lunatic, which means he was crazy, which would make this a very sad story. Or he's Lord. He's exactly who he said he is. And if that's the case, it changes everything. So that's the first point, is that the resurrection is real and it verifies everything that Jesus said. Secondly, we recognize that those who get it recognize that the resurrection verifies the good news of what Jesus has taught. Well, what is the good news? Well, we recognize first in the good news that's the word gospel. The gospel word gospel means good news. It's a proclamation. And what Jesus has been proclaiming over these three years is that God created the world and he created us as humans to, as rulers of the world under him. God rules this world that he made and like a potter with his clay, he fashioned it in the way that he should so choose as he wished with all the amazing details. He made it and he owns it. He also made us. He made people who were something like himself and put them in charge to rule for it, to care for it, to be responsible for it, and to enjoy all its beauty and goodness. And he appointed humanity to supervise, to look after the world, but always under his authority and his rule. And the sad truth is, from the very beginning, men and women everywhere have rejected God by doing things their own way. We all do it. We don't like someone telling us how to do or how to live or least of all God. So we rule. Becky Pippert calls it a God complex. That's what we have. We all have a God complex. We ignore him. We just get on with our lives. We live our lives how we want to, saying no to him. And we'll say, no, thank you. I'll take it from there. I'm good. However we do it, whether we shake our fists at him and tell him to get lost or just say, no, thank you. We all have a God complex and we don't want to live God's way. We want to live by our own desires and to run our things without God. And this is what the Bible calls sin. And the trouble is, look at the news. Look at the mess that our world is in. 
We don't make not a mess not only of our own lives, but of our society and the world. The whole world is full of people bent on doing what suits them and not following the revelation of God and his ways. We all act like little gods, putting these little ridiculous crowns upon our heads, crowning ourselves, and the result is for life a world full of misery, injustice, that we see going all the way back. And our basic desire is to be little g God of our own lives. And in so doing, we build up our own self-righteousness before a holy God. So what's God going to do about it? Well, he does two things about that that we already are very much aware of. First of all, death comes into the world, that we won't live forever. I've been saying it all Lent. None of us gets out of here alive, right? Because it's true. Death will come to us all, and two, we all will be judged. God cares enough about humanity to take our rebellion seriously. He calls us to account for our actions because it matters to him how we treat him and other people. In other words, he won't let us rebel forever. The sentence that God's passed against us is entirely just and because he gives us exactly what we ask for. In rebelling, if we say to God our entire lives, go away, I'll do it my way. I don't want you telling me what to do. Leave me alone. Well, he'll honor that in eternity. If we come to him with our self-righteousness, by our choice, we will forever live in the unfavorable presence of God, which is the very definition of hell. And this is a terrible thing to fall under the sentence of God's judgment. It's a prospect we all face since we're all guilty of rebelling against God. But this is the good news. God did something about it in Jesus Christ because he came because of Jesus Christ he came into the world to live the life we should have lived and he died the death that we fully deserved upon the cross and it's because of his great love and generosity God did not leave the consequences of our rebellion to ourselves our self-righteousness unlike us Jesus came and didn't rebel against God he always lived under God's rule. He always did what God said and so did not deserve death and punishment, yet he willingly laid down his life for us, which we celebrated on Good Friday. He died as a substitute for God-complex rebels just like us, and the debt that we owed to God, Jesus paid in full. He took the full force of God's justice on himself so that forgiveness and pardon might be available on this Resurrection Sunday for each and every one of us as we seek to live our lives. And all of this, quite frankly, is quite undeserved by us. It's a generous gift from start to finish. And that's not all. See, what we celebrate today with my obnoxious great shout, there's a reason why I lose my voice at the 11 o'clock service. It's good news that Jesus is risen indeed. He he not only accepted the payment, he rose again. And as he, our ruler now, he has been appointed the judge of all the world. And he will judge fairly and with mercy. And what he does is, as we place our trust in his atoning work alone upon the cross, we can be forgiven through Jesus' death and make a fresh start with God. And he pours out his Holy Spirit upon us to live the lives he's called us to live, using our giftings, using our 
our talents for him because he died in our place. So Jesus conquered death and he gives us new life. And that's good news, my friends. Do you get it? Luke is begging you at this point. I've been writing for 23 chapters for crying out loud. Do you get it? Well, how do you get it? Well, you do it like the women and like Peter. Verse 8, And they remembered his words in returning from the tomb. They told all these things to the leaven and to all the rest. And Peter, he marveled at what had happened. <laughs> you see, when you recognize that your situation before a holy God is hopeless, but it's been fulfilled for you upon the cross in Jesus. There's only one reaction. Lord, I surrender it. You got it all. It's yours. I give you my life to do with as you wish. And as you do that, God wipes the slate clean. You are forgiven. That candy bar you stole when you were 11, forgiven. You're still feeling guilty for it. God wipes our slate clean and he pours his spirit into our heart and grants us a new life that stretches past our death into eternity, my friends. We're no longer rebels. We're part of God's family, even as we walk together imperfectly in this life. As his adopted son or daughter, if you're adopted in the family, they don't disown you because you misbehave at times. You're still in because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so now we live with Jesus as our ruler, with great purpose, freedom, and certainty. Not clothed in our own self-righteousness, you're clothed in Jesus's. And we trust in him alone. You see, that's my story. You guys think I've always been like this? Oh, no. Oh, no. Let me tell you my testimony. Number one, I grew up on three-quarters of an acre in Fairfax, Virginia, with my front yard as the neighborhood football field. My home is built in a neighborhood that feels like you're in the Virginia countryside, although you're only 16 miles from Washington, D.C., which my dad always reminded me, if there's a nuclear attack, we're dead, so don't worry about it. <laughs> and so we grew up, and church, to me, just couldn't hold a candle. I mean, we had that 28 prayer book at True Church. Lord, we, we, we're thankful for the innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same. I would sit next to my parents, and Ricky Calvert was my best friend growing up. And he's still my best friend. He lives out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we would go, I'm in first grade. Innumerable benefits procured to what? You know, and we'd listen to thou and thee and thy, and then we'd go off to Sunday school. And we would look at this as night language. These are the type of words that knights use, Right? And so as a first and second grade boy, we would look at one another across the table and we'd say, Thou art but a fool. <laughs> Thou art stupid looking. <laughs> Thine arm ought to be cut off. Thou shalt pass me the crayons and the macaroni Moses, or I shall bash your face in. That was in first and second grade. It had no relevance in my life whatsoever. Yeah, no relevance to my parents. We, we just came to church out of duty. We came to Easter Sunday because we should. We came because that's what you do. They had no life. And it couldn't hold a candle and compete with my love for baseball, for football, 
for girls. We had the most beautiful girls in all of Northern Virginia at Woodson High School. And it couldn't compete with ZZ Top and Larry Gatlin and the Gatlin Brothers. I mean, you know. But I found myself on a treadmill. Because what happened was I pursued status among my peers. In the classroom and on the athletic field. And as I achieved that status, it never truly satisfied, ever. Because I was thinking to myself, you know, you get rich, you die. You're poor, you die. You get a beautiful home, you die. You marry the woman of your dreams, you die. <laughs> you achieve great status in your career, you die. What meaning is there? I was a lot of fun at the lunch table. What's the meaning of life? Shut up, Gene. It doesn't matter. I go, well, it does, doesn't it? We just start talking. So I went on what became a five-year journey for me. Because underneath, I was this 17-year-old kid trying to figure out, does life matter? And I was like the rider of Ecclesiastes chasing after the wind. But in the kindness of God, my local Anglican church was filled. And by the time I came back to church in ninth grade, uh, they changed the prayer book, and I could understand it. You know, it was filled with both people and ministers. And, and their lives were palpable with joy, love, hope, certainty, meaning that I didn't have. And it was a different Jesus that they spoke about that was in my home, among my peers. Because when they talked about God, that salvation was by grace through trusting in Jesus Christ's cross, work upon the cross alone for my salvation, and it's from placing my trust in that, therefore I live. Therefore I walk in the joy of the Lord. And it took me a while to figure that out, even though it was preached in one way or form each and every Sunday. But eventually, I gave in. I surrendered. And I decided that I'd be free from trying to be impressive. And I discovered a life of great meaning, peace, and hope, and that the world couldn't compete with what the Lord Jesus had revealed to me. How about you? Do you believe this? Oh, well, a lot of people say they believe it, but it hasn't impacted them at all. Here's what Jesus says what true belief looks like. If you go back in Luke to chapter 9, verse 23 to 25, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny myself means to surrender to the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross alone. I can't work my way to salvation. It isn't going to work that way. If I try to work my way into salvation, I'm going with my own self-righteousness, and you know how that will turn out. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross daily, which means follow him daily. Die to yourself daily. Follow him, and it's in so doing that there's great joy, there's great hope, there's great meaning, there's great peace. I don't have to be impressive. It's awesome. And he says, forever who would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. That's what happens when we deny ourselves and take up our cross. We save our lives for today and forever. 
And it's interesting. It says that Jesus anticipated America in the next verse. Verse 25. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? <laughs> Let's think about that for a hot second. Let's say you own it all. You work really, really, really hard and you own it all. I mean everything. You own Google, Apple, IBM, GM, Ford, BMW, Nissan, Toyota, Porsche. You own the Bank of America and all the Swiss banks. You own everything. Now what? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and you forfeit your soul? You see, my friends, Jesus came for more. Now, if, if God calls you to be the head of GM, that's a great thing. Nothing's wrong with that. As a matter of fact, let's, let me take you out to lunch. We're trying to buy this building, you know? Uh, you know, it's on me, you know? But that's not the pursuit. The Christian lives to pursue Jesus because in the end, we get Jesus who loves you like this. Do you got it? I certainly hope so. It's true. It verifies the good news. So we're going to pray to respond. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And ask you to have the peace and the meaning and the joy and the hope that only a life lived in Jesus Christ can give you. Let's pray. I just encourage you in the quietness of your heart to, to pray along with me. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you because of my own self-righteousness. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I have a God complex and I'm guilty before you. I've ignored you, rebelled against you, and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and pour your Holy Spirit out upon me to change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.